Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 24th, 2011, and my guest is Barry Eichengreen, the George C. Pardee and Helen N. Pardee Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author of Exorbitant Privilege, The Rise and Fall of the Dollar, and the Future of the International Monetary System. Barry, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you, Russell. Good to be here. Your book is a brisk history of international finance, focusing on how the U.S. dollar became the dominant currency in the world and the possibility that that dominance might come to an end sometime in the future. Let's start with why it matters. Why is it important that the the dollar is the dominant currency? Why is that important to the United States? Well, the the fact that the dollar is the dominant currency is uh, of considerable convenience to U.S. banks and firms when they do uh, uh, business with foreign banks and firms. They can do it in their own currency without having to uh, uh, incur the cost uh, of uh, buying euros or Swiss francs or British pounds, and they don't have to insure against the risk that the exchange rate will change while that uh, business is underway. Um, other other countries look at us, the Chinese look at us, and, and they see that it's an advantage for American banks and firms to be able to do um, business globally in dollars, and, and that's part of the motivation now for the Chinese to begin to move cautiously to internationalize their currency as well. Now, th- those that's not the only – convenience is not the only important privilege that uh, having the dollar be dominant uh, gives us. And when we say dominant, we're talking about the fact that dollars are accepted in most international transactions. The price of oil is denominated in dollars. What are some of the other – privileges that the U.S. Uh, accrues for its um, importance of the dollar? The fact that the dollar is uh, um, viewed as, as the ultimate form of liquidity uh, that the U.S. Treasury bond market is the single most liquid financial market in the world makes it attractive to uh, international investors, banks in other countries, and notably foreign uh, central banks and governments to hold uh, dollars as a a form of insurance against uh, the possibility that something might go wrong in in global financial markets. There is the the possibility that uh, food prices might go up, requiring countries that import food or uh, energy to take another uh, timely example. They may need uh, additional dollars to finance their Imports. So as the, the global economy grows, um, foreign governments and central banks want to acquire more of this insurance. Um, that allows uh, the United States, in effect, to uh, uh, export green pieces of paper, which cost us very little uh, to produce, and import uh, Toyotas and BMWs uh, and the like. Uh, economists refer to this uh, as seniorage, 
the, the ability uh, of the United States to provide the, the global currency at low cost uh, to ourselves. And um, I, I suggest in the book, I estimate in the book, that uh, U.S. living standards are about 3% higher in total than they w would be otherwise as a result uh, of uh, this uh, exorbitant privilege that at the moment only the United States possesses. Now, the, the uh, dominance of the U.S. Treasury market, uh, that allows the United States government to borrow money at slightly lower rates than it otherwise would, correct? Correct. So, so one um, reason that uh, U.S. living standards are higher than they would be in the absence uh, of the fact that the dollar is not only our currency, but the world's. Um, one, one form in, in which that benefit accrues to us is, is indeed that uh, the U.S. government can borrow money for less. Uh, Treasury bond prices are higher and yields are lower than they would be otherwise because the, the People's Bank of China and the uh, Brazilian Central Bank and others have been buying dollars big time. Why are they doing that? Well, uh, they're, they're doing it for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, I alluded to one, which is that uh, they value the liquidity of the dollar, and they see dollar balances, dollar reserves, as uh, a form of insurance. But they're uh, also buying dollars to keep their own currencies down, uh, to keep their own exports uh, competitive uh, for the last 30 years. China has been uh, uh, pursuing a very successful development model that has uh, centered, a, as every American now knows, on exports. And to keep their exports competitive, they've been keeping their currency low. The other way of viewing that is they have an interest in keeping the dollar high, and they've been uh, buying U.S. Treasury bonds. And uh, before the crisis, not Incidentally, the securities uh, of Freddie and Fannie, the, the government-sponsored mortgage agencies, uh, partly to achieve that, to keep their currencies down, their exports to yeah. the United States competitive. So economists uh, argue, about, uh, as they do about many things, <laughs> they argue about the relative importance of, of these two motives. Some countries are interested in, in obtaining dollars as insurance. Others kind of accumulate them inadvertently as a byproduct of their strategies of export-led growth. We're going to digress for a minute here because I, I think this is so important and it, the mechanics of this will be useful, I hope, as we continue talking. This argument that China is – trying to manipulate the price of its exports um, to the rest of the world through uh, its behavior with the dollar. Walk me through that and how that interacts with the, say, government-sponsored agencies. So if I'm – I look at China, I see them taking dollars that they've earned from exports and using them to buy uh, government-sponsored agency Fannie and Freddie bonds – which were attracted to them because they had a slightly higher yield, but they viewed them correctly, as it turned out, as being just as safe as U.S. Treasuries. How does that affect their currency? What does that have to do with it? Well, um, there, there are a, a couple of different uh, respects in, in which these transactions matter. 
So one of them is that, um, as we were talking about before, China is trying to make its exports to the United States uh, as competitive as possible. For a, for a long time, uh, China has had uh, virtually unlimited uh, supplies of labor to the modern manufacturing sector. I think that um, era may now be drawing to a close, but that's a different story. So wages in, in, in China have been stable, and the way uh, they have been able to keep their uh, exports uh, competitive is by uh, uh, keeping their currency stable and, and thereby keeping their labor costs, their wages in, in terms of dollars stable. And they do that by preventing their currency from rising uh, uh, against the dollar. They um, buy the dollar if it shows a tendency to fall against uh, Chinese renminbi, and they end up, therefore, holding um, trillions of dollars in U.S. Treasury bonds. So that's how it matters for them, and uh, the irony of that process is something that has benefited them greatly for the last 20 years. Export-led growth has been uh, an astounding success for China. may now be coming back to haunt them because uh, if the dollar begins to decline against China's currency, uh, as seems likely going forward, they're going to take losses on their uh, holdings of, uh, of U.S. Treasuries. The other respect in which it matters, uh, I think, has been uh, uh, in, in terms of pouring more fuel on, on, on the fires that led to the financial crisis in the United States. So the financial crisis ha had multiple causes, no, no event as uh, serious as the financial crisis of 2007-2009 could result from, from only one factor. But among those causes, I think, were the low interest rates on relatively safe securities like U.S. Treasury bonds that led uh, other investors, uh, banks and investment funds in the United States to stretch for yield, to look for yield in, in other financial markets like the subprime market, the subprime securitization market and all that. I find I find that claim a bit mystifying, but I found your earlier claim equally so, and I want to get back to that. We'll get, maybe we'll get to the crisis later. Uh, the This idea that uh, – and I'm going to use a phrase. Tell me if I'm using it correctly because I always find this equally um, perplexing. Uh, China, in your story about their export-led growth, wants a strong dollar, which means relative to other currencies. Um, they want a weak Chinese currency in, in order that Chinese goods should be cheap. And is that a correct summary of what you said? Um, so far, so good. Okay. So that's good for the United States, it seems, on average. It's not good for every person in the United States, but you're, say, you're suggesting that despite their extraordinarily low labor costs, uh, which would certainly be part of the reason that they, their exports are so attractive, despite that, they have decided to 
encourage an even further cheapening of the price of their goods to American consumers, thereby giving us um, a windfall. Is that correct or not correct? Yeah, um, that, that's basically correct. So, um, Why do they do that? Well, look, look at the Chinese economy. Um, household consumption is only one-third of Chinese national income, uh, barely half what you would see in an advanced economy. Right, it's about two-thirds. Essentially, they're interested in, in foregoing current consumption, current gratification, in order to uh, generate faster growth and higher living standards in the future. So Chinese leadership is engaged in this calculated strategy where they think um, there is a lot of learning by doing and learning by exporting in particular by building a assembly platform not only for, for their producers but for our producers, for foreign multinationals. Sure. They will acquire foreign technology and know-how and by sacrificing gratification now, they'll have um, faster growth and higher living standards in, in the future. Could be. Um, and, and conversely, uh, if uh, Americans uh, get to live uh, up, uh, beyond their means for a period, you know, we were running current account deficits, uh, essentially trade deficits of 6% of, G- of GDP before the crisis, consuming 6% more uh, than we produced uh, as a nation, um, that was something that the Chinese were willing to finance for a time as the price to be paid for a 10% growth. Now, there are um, some people – you use languages, of course, very difficult to use precisely, especially in economics. That's why we have all art jargon, but – um, what you said is the first part is very straightforward. When we run, when we import more than we export by six percent, our our uh, trade deficit, that allows us to consume more than we produce. Now, a household can do that by borrowing, but as you point out in the book, a nation can do that without borrowing if it provides something of value that makes the currency flows attractive uh, to, to finance uh, that current account or trade deficit. And I use the word finance. That's one of those words. It's a little bit hard to know exactly what that means. But I'm being a little bit of a stickler here on behalf of my colleague, Don Boudreau, who always likes to point out that when you run a trade deficit, it does not mean you're going into debt. And as you point out in the book – if the Chinese are willing to hold U.S. dollars for whatever reason, whether it's this currency issue or insurance, whatever it is, uh, if the U.S. is an attractive place to invest, we can live beyond our means in a way without going into debt. Is that correct? That is correct, and, and um, I should, uh, in the interest of fairness, uh, acknowledge that there is a second explanation for why the U.S. has been running these uh, persistent external deficits, and countries like China have been running persistent external surpluses. Uh, that second explanation saying there is a, a, a shortage of safe liquid assets in the world, 
and only the United States is really in a position to supply them. So I think um, historically that um, uh, explanation has, has a lot of merit to it. Yeah, but going forward, a lot of people are worried about whether uh, <laughs> these U.S. dollar assets are really well, that's safe gonna, I mean, and that's what has worked continue. in the past will work in the future. There's two aspects of safe, one of which I think everybody understands. The second, uh, you don't talk about, about much in your book, and I was surprised. One definition of safe is that uh, the country honors its promises. Uh, the country doesn't default. Uh, there isn't a revolution, so you can't get into the bank where your stuff is. Uh, that's one measure of safe. The other measure of safe is is stable, meaning that the purchasing power of the asset is relatively uh, stable. And inflation, more accurately, relative inflation rates, would seem to be extremely important. Are they empirically? In other words, the U.S. historically has run relatively low inflation relative to other nations, but they're not the only country that has relatively low inflation. And it's interesting to me that other countries are not more successful in being a, um, a source of foreign funds for that reason. Yeah, so I think price stability is important, and, and I think I would um, politely disagree with your um, uh, characterization before that I don't talk very much about stability in the book. Um, but I, price, so I stabi- do think, price stability, inflation. Yeah, I, I, I do think that um, the price stability is important uh, if a country is going to um, retain its status as the uh, issuer uh, of a global currency. And liquidity is important uh, as well. That sure. the asset, uh, uh, you have to be able to convert it into something else you want, energy or food or uh, some other uh, essential import without uh, driving down the price of that asset when, uh, when you sell it off. So the U.S. has the advantage of, of, of liquid financial markets, and it has done well over the last 50 years uh, in, in, in terms of, uh, relatively speaking, in, in, in terms of maintaining price stability. So I, I, I do think both aspects matter. I would finally... Um, uh, uh, observe that we had a period of, of uh, bad performance in terms of inflation in the 1970s. And Absolutely. there were a lot of predictions uh, at that point about uh, migration away from the dollar towards some uh, alternative unit like the, the Japanese yen or the German Deutschmark. As There's no the euro at the currency. time. So it didn't happen. Um, I, I do think inflation poses a risk to, to currency stability, but um, you've got to do a really bad job for an extended period before a currency like the dollar loses the advantages of incumbency. Well, one phrase you hear sometimes is uh, the dollar retains its attractiveness because it's the tallest pygmy. So even though the dollar is not doing very well, everybody else is doing worse. So you're just, you know, that that is what matters. It's your relative performance. And certainly... In the 70s, the dollar was, the U.S. wasn't the only country experiencing inflation, and that, that may have been part of the reason it was able to, to survive it. Yeah, it certainly helped, know, right? The, the other way to put people put it is the, uh, the least ugly contestant at the beauty pageant, yeah. and that continues to support the, the dollar's global role today, that the alternatives uh, all have problems of their own. Let, let's talk about monetary policy, uh, and you have a lot of 
of very interesting historical episodes where central banks, either American or, or non-American, uh, struggled to deal with the fact that they had one goal uh, domestically with monetary policy that conflicted with an international goal. And I think this, the subtlety of that dilemma uh, escapes uh, many of us. Can you give us some examples of that or even just speak generally about the advantage the U.S. has over other central banks given that, that the dollar is the international currency uh, and that other central banks struggle because of that and this dilemma? Well, the problem that um, other central banks face is that there are, are um, all kinds, kinds of uh, firms and banks and, and households um, in their countries who have debts in other currencies, in other people's money. So in, in the country of Hungary, for example, most of the car loans are not in Hungarian foreigns, but they're in Swiss francs because Swiss banks have lent money to uh, Hungarian banks in Swiss francs, and the Hungarian banks turn around and lend the money, uh, make the car loan to uh, car purchasers in, in, in Budapest in Swiss francs. So if the Hungarian uh, foreign uh, depreciates, it loses value against uh, the Swiss franc. Suddenly the uh, Hungarian uh, uh, worker, the Hungarian household that, that uh, has bought a car, finds that its wages in, in, in foreign won't pay for the car loan anymore. The Hungarian Central Bank, therefore, cannot let the, the currency fall too much uh, against the Swiss franc. It may want uh, uh, an accommodating monetary policy, a low interest rate policy to support the economy. But if it sees the, the foreign falling against the Swiss franc, it's going to have to tighten up uh, regardless of the other consequences. Uh, the United States doesn't have to worry about that. At his famous press conference last month, uh, Mr. Bernanke Said, like Famous because US, of its uniqueness. Yeah, yeah he <laughs> said, we believe in a strong dollar, but uh, the U.S. can follow what's called a policy of benign neglect toward the, uh, the exchange rate of the dollar and, and basically worry um, entirely about what policies are, are appropriate for the U.S. economy. With the only risk that it could kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. It could, it could take, if it abuses that exorbitant privilege too excessively, it will call into question the, the value of the currency as an international exchange mechanism. And so there's, there's potentially costs, but they're nothing like what other nations have to deal with. Exactly. Um, are you familiar with, um, with Doug Irwin's argument about uh, the role that uh, gold flows in the uh, run-up to the Great Depression played in France, that France was hoarding currency – forcing the U.S. Uh, and other nations to, to absorb deflation. Yeah, I, I'm uh, familiar with the argument, and I've written uh, along similar lines in my um, earlier book, Golden Fetters. Um, there are those uh, parallels between uh, what France did then in the run-up to the Great Depression and what China has been doing recently. Yeah, why is that? But we, 
I interviewed Doug, and, and we had an interesting conversation about his work. And the question of whether it, it's um, – explain how China, through its policy and, – and I'm a skeptic on this, so um, – because I think it's hard to know, but you're, you're making the claim that they're they're following this deliberate policy. H- how would that hurt us? How could they cause us, say, deflation or, or some other monetary impact that we would be unable to offset? Well, the, um, the problem at the moment, and there are you know, other folks like Paul Krugman who are more articulate uh, um, exponents of this particular story than I am, is that um, the U.S. would like to offset the deflationary impact of low prices caused in part by cheap goods uh, coming into China, but we have a a variety of constraints now that prevent us in, in the United States from doing anything about that. One uh, is that it's hard to use monetary policy any more extensively uh, than we've used it. The Fed is up against what is called the zero bound, right. and fiscal policy is uh, um, not available either for economic reasons, if you're worried about the, the medium process, medium-term debt dynamics in the United States, or for political reasons. Yeah. I don't. I don't understand that argument. Let, let me try to explain my confusion. And and I, I actually think um, I suspect you're as articulate as as Mr. Krugman. Um, maybe just have a, you're a little quieter. Um, he, he does yell about it. He, he's worked up over it. it and, and I don't understand it because if China, let's say, there we can think of three ways that China could deliver us cheap manufactured goods. One is more than three, but I'll just pick a few. They could artificially subsidize them directly through domestic tax subsidy policies. Uh, They could do it through the currency, as you're suggesting that they do. Uh, It could happen because uh, they have a very low labor cost or that those costs are falling. Or they could just be very productive. In fact, they could be increasingly productive. So they continue – to deliver us inexpensive goods. All of those things would be good for us, and they wouldn't be deflationary. They'd be deflationary in manufactured goods, but in the absence of overall monetary policy being different, um, other prices would rise, and the price level would respond. The price level as a whole wouldn't, wouldn't be deflationary nor inflationary in those different scenarios. What am I missing? Well, you're missing the importance uh, of aggregate demand that much of, I think, what you were uh, describing before, Russ, is, is about the supply of Chinese goods and, and the benefits to uh, American consumers of the fact that uh, flat-screen TVs are, are cheaper at Best Buy than uh, they would be if China was not following it, it, its current policies. But uh, the argument goes... And at the moment, I think it has merit that we also have a problem of, of aggregate demand. There has to be a, a, a demand for uh, uh, American goods in, in order to get uh, uh, employment growth going. We have a, uh, a serious unemployment problem in the United States that we will only get traction on if we get the economy to grow faster. Um, we can't uh, 
stimulate domestic demand using the, uh, the normal policy instruments because we've fired those bullets and, and we're out of them. Um, and so the argument goes China is artificially diverting the, the fixed lump of demand that we have in the United States at the moment, partly toward its own cheap exports, and that's leaving, leaving less work for, uh, for Americans. But that doesn't um, I, happen. I agree. There are other ways uh, of solving that problem over time. American workers uh, need to become more productive. We need more capital formation. We need to invest in skills and training, and, and we can solve that problem. But um, right now, 9% unemployment is a problem, and I think Chinese policy makes a con- contributes to that. I'm not saying that China is responsible for our 9% unemployment, but its policies are not helping. Okay, so well, I'm not a Keynesian, so which is neither here nor there. We're, I don't want to get into the intricacies of aggregate demand management. But the, again, it, if I think about this as a, it, maybe it's, it's thinking about it in a different context and, and not in a crisis time. If another nation makes stuff better than we do through what we usually call either creative destruction or comparative advantage. We go on to make something else, and it's easier to do because we don't have to devote as many resources as we used to to make flat-screen TVs. So in particular, it's um, – I don't want American workers to get more competitive at making flat-screen TVs. Let's let the Chinese make them. Why would we want to do that? Right. So so you put your finger on it uh, in, a, in a crisis time in a period when there is uh, inadequate aggregate demand. Um, the effects of foreign policies on the United States are different than in normal times. In a, in a fully employed economy or something close to that, your uh, argument about how uh, the Chinese have a comparative advantage in, in assembling consumer electronics so Americans uh, ought to move into, into other activities and everybody is better off yeah. is exactly right, but we're not in that full employment world at the moment. So I'm, I'm going to avoid labels entirely, but I would ask you whether uh, an economy with 9% uh, unemployment is, um, uh, whether we can really uh, apply your story about uh, comparative advantages, all that matters, and aggregate demand doesn't to an economy with 9% unemployment where we don't have tools at home to stimulate demand at the moment. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess the, the disagreement there would be that the tools that we have, we don't agree on whether they work or not, um, whether the past stimulus package, whether that helped, whether it did nothing, whether it was inadequate, not big enough. Um, but uh, I, let me just make an historical remark, which which you uh, bring up in, in your, in your hist- historical section of the book, which is that Keynes, who was a, uh, a classical liberal in many dimensions before the Great Depression, did find himself uh, advocating protectionism at various times to the surprise and, and disappointment of some of his colleagues. But it's exactly for the reason that you're talking about. He was um, he, he felt that that foreign uh, exports were taking up jobs. Which, um, which he would not have said in healthy times, I think. He was a free it, trader historically. 
Yeah, so he had he had been a, a, a dedicated uh, free trader. He found himself in in 1931 in a in a situation where unemployment in Britain was uh, approaching 20 percent, where for a combination of reasons the government didn't have other tools with which to uh, address it, and he reluctantly concluded that a a, a tariff to bottle up the uh, the fixed lump of demand that uh, that Britain had at home was uh, uh, the best of a, a variety of bad choices. What happened next, of course, was that Britain went off the gold standard and monetary policy became available to the Bank of England, and Keynes uh, changed his mind yet again. You know, his famous phrase was... Uh, when when uh, the circumstances change, I change my mind. Young man, what do you do? <laughs> right. um, so uh, he uh, said a tariff really is no longer appropriate now that we have monetary policy again. Uh, let's go back to the history. Uh, let's go back to U.S. history. You tell a very interesting story of the evolution of, of just the dollar from the very beginning, You but you go back to colonial times. And by the way, what, to the listeners out there, this is a short – I said brisk at the beginning, and that, I meant short. Uh, it's um, – I think it's, 100 and, it's 177 pages. Is that – I read it on my Kindle, so I didn't have a – I don't have the page numbers exactly, but it's not long. So when, I, when we talk about these historical episodes, uh, Barry, you do a very nice job in, in talking about them in, in short but very illuminating strokes. So you go back to colonial times, and the U.S. doesn't – even have a currency to start with. It only has British pounds because it's a British colony. And in its early days, it struggles to create any traction for for the dollar um, at all in any international sense. And somehow it manages – it manages as if that's a meaningful phrase. Uh, historical events occur by which the dollar overtakes the pound sterling. Try to give us a thumbnail sketch of how that very unpredictable event took place. Well, it took place through a, a combination of um, conscious policy initiative by uh, U.S. politicians and, and, and officials on the one hand and historical circum, uh, circumstance on the other. Uh, there was a big financial crisis in the United States in, in 1907 that uh, was uh, managed by uh, J.P. Morgan and uh, his right-hand man, Benjamin Strong, uh, a New York banker, in the absence of a, uh, a central bank. The lesson drawn from that was that uh, the United States uh, should have a, uh, a central bank, and that led to the, the Federal Reserve Act uh, in, and, and the founding of the Fed in 1914. But the other thing that was going on at the same time, I think, right, 1913. Uh, I think the act in in 1913 and the opening in in 1914. Right. As you said, the history is brisk. Yeah, um, <laughs> I love that kind of I love that kind of precision. I, thank you. Go ahead. But um, the the other thing that uh, the founders were concerned about was, was this fact that the dollar played no international role. That U.S. Importers and exporters, when they needed trade credit, uh, had to go to London in order to get it from an English bank. That they 
uh, for the uh, additional transactions costs uh, of having to buy a foreign currency if a U.S. importer of coffee beans from Brazil wanted to pay his uh, Brazilian counterparty. He had to ask his local bank for a, a letter of credit. The local bank had to ask a correspondent bank in, in London for the letter. Everything was denominated in pound sterling, and that was a considerable disadvantage for U.S. merchants and traders and producers. The One of the things you highlight is the challenge of buying stuff from other countries, which we take totally for granted in today's world. But for much of the early part of the U.S. history, as you point out, uh, you had to you had to pay this guy in Brazil something he could use, and he didn't yeah, want dollars and, usually. And 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 almost without out exception, they didn't want dollars. They didn't uh, know about dollars. They didn't regard dollars as uh, convenient. Um, uh, London was the, the global financial center. It was in, in 1914 what uh, New York is uh, today. Uh, everybody kept their deposits uh, in London. Everybody got their trade finance, their credit in London, and all of that was denominated in sterling. So the, the founders of the Fed basically set out to change that um, by creating a, a central bank that could provide uh, liquidity to U.S. financial markets. Um, their, the, the instrument that they created was called the, the trade acceptance, which was basically uh, a, a, a security that uh, was used to finance trade. And the Fed began to buy and sell those uh, trade acceptances big time. That, well, the whole you – know, the, uh, there's a – I wanted to stop you earlier, but – the the word credit, we think of. I think the average American thinks of credit as what you need if you can't afford something right now. But if you're a commercial producer, credit is you got to have credit because you don't have the timing is always a little bit different. Just yeah. to be a going concern, you have to be able to get access to money before the money comes in to pay it off. So the, the American uh, importer of coffee beans from Brazil is going to import the, the bags full of beans, and he's got to pay for that now. He will roast the beans, he will uh, sell them, and he will get uh, the income from the he transaction hopes. down the road. <laughs> he needs a credit in the meantime. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing that we don't ever think about, and the idea of doing that internationally that, – that, in the, in, the, in the absence of the central bank, in the absence of, of, these, of this asset you're talking about, uh, you a few minutes ago described the process. You'd have to get a letter of credit. You'd get your local bank to get a letter of credit from an English bank. Um, wasn't that timing extraordinarily costly, or did it sort of come to be somewhat smoother as people trusted reliable merchants and, and banks? It, it, it was expensive by our uh, modern standards. When we're used to uh, only uh, paying a, uh, a couple of dollars when we stick a bank card into a machine in a foreign airport, but it became more uh, uh, efficient with the passage of time. So uh, the city of London, uh, the name for London's financial center, really came to specialize over the course of the 19th century in uh, providing this credit. The banks in London were referred to as merchant banks. We 
would call them investment banks using uh, 21st century lingo. But they were merchant banks because they specialized in providing credit for merchants who were doing important export trade. And they got pretty good at it. So the Federal Reserve comes along. It starts creating a market in these these basically what are import-export credits that will make it a little bit easier for American firms to operate abroad. How do you get from there to uh, dominating this, the pound sterling? Well, uh, you, you get there because uh, this market grows very quickly, and there's uh, another big event, World War I, that intervenes and, and kind of um, cuts the city of London off from uh, a lot of its uh, customary business. Um, the two things combine. By 1924, uh, the dollar has moved from a point where 10 years earlier it was not used internationally at all to where now it's used uh, in 1924 to finance more foreign trade uh, as the currency in which more international bonds are issued, and it becomes more important. It's already more important as a reserve currency than the pound sterling. So that's a, a very rapid uh, changing of the guard, and it reflected two things, the creation of the Fed and the Fed's campaign to create these markets and internationalize the dollar, plus uh, the dis- disruptions of World War I. But the third factor, and this is, of course, all these factors, what's interesting about the story and the way you structure the book is that if, the, if it's possible for a new, an upstart currency to overcome the some of the advantages of an incumbent currency, you start to wonder whether it could happen again. And we'll come back to that and talk about China or maybe the euro as well. But the um, other factor, I assume, and if I remember you talk about it in the book, is just the absolute growth in the U.S. economy as as a market for uh, economic activity generally. That's relevant as well, correct? It is. So if you ask me what are the preconditions for uh, your currency to, to be the dominant global unit, I would answer three things. Number one, a big platform that you do a lot of international trade and, and investment, what you just said. Uh, number two, stability, uh, low inflation and uh, all that. And number three, that your financial markets are, are, are liquid and uh, uh, viewed with confidence. So let's, talk, let's turn to China. Um, they're pretty good on the first one. They're enormously growing, at least for now. Some say that they may be, it may not last, uh, but they're they're growing like um, leaps by leaps and bounds. Uh, so they're a big platform. What was the second? Uh, the second one is uh, price stability. Price stability, hard to know. <laughs> uh, they're a little bit of opaque, which would be one challenge that they will have, obviously, uh, we have our opaqueness as well in the United States, um, unfortunately. But uh, we're again by the tallest pygmy. We're, we're pretty opaque. We're pretty transparent relative to China, data-wise and price-wise, et cetera. Right. And the third would be uh, liquidity. And as you point out in the book, China has been very uh, uneasy about opening its foreign currency to easy, liquid international transactions. Talk about that. So I I think you put it well, Um, and the Chinese um, understand these uh, uh, different dimensions of global currency status. Uh, 
international currency status uh, has different aspects to it. Your currency can be used as a means of payment and a unit of account for imports and exports. And they're now moving very rapidly to uh, encourage their their companies and foreign companies to do cross-border trade using their means of payment and, and unit of account, uh, the renminbi. Some, uh, two years ago, zero Chinese companies used their own currency in import and export trade. Now something on the order of 70,000 do so. So they're moving pretty fast. Um, the second uh, thing they have to do is uh, uh, enhance the liquidity of their financial markets and open them to foreign investors. That's going to be harder. Um, it, it will uh, create risks to their economy if they, if they go too fast and creating confidence on the part of foreign investors so that foreign private investors and central banks are willing to park their, their money in, in Shanghai is going to be hard, harder. But they are moving in that direction as well. So they've uh, authorized, uh, 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 they've allowed a bunch of companies to issue Chinese renminbi denominated bonds, dim sum bonds they're called, uh, in Hong Kong. McDonald's has done it, Caterpillar has done it, and they use the, uh, the revenues to invest in, in operations in China. They've authorized uh, a number of banks in Hong Kong to invest in uh, the interbank market in, in mainland China as well. So they are gradually letting foreign investors in uh, to a limited extent, completing that process and really creating uh, turning Shanghai into an international financial center, their stated goal by 2020 is going to be a lot harder. What's, what's their, their stated goal by 2020? Well, they've said uh, Shanghai should be a true international financial center to rival London and New York by 2020. That's going to, going to be hard to accomplish, but um, I'd also observe that We've uh, repeatedly underestimated how fast the Chinese can move before. Um, they may well uh, achieve that. So let's talk about what the U.S. Uh, could do uh, in the negative sense, what mistakes the United States might make or choices that might be forced on us uh, that would make that transition easier for the Chinese. One thing that many people are worried about, and I'm – Agnostic about it, slightly worried, is the um, the magnitude of the reserves that U.S. banks hold on the Fed's balance sheet, and the potential for those reserves to come out uh, when things get a little bit better and and be inflationary, which I assume, which would, for example, um, not literally lead to a default, but would lower the value of what we repay foreigners for debts that we've incurred, uh, treasuries and and those other assets. We were talking about earlier agency securities. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And is that the right thing to worry about? Are there other things to worry about if I'm worried about that 3% bonus that we're getting from uh, from the dollar? Um, I think, as I say uh, in, in the book, the Chinese are not going to uh, cause a dollar crash. Uh, if there is one, we will do it. We Americans will do it to ourselves. Um, but I would really um, 
myself draw uh, a very strong distinction between the monetary risks and uh, the budgetary risks. I think I would disagree with you, Russ, about the danger posed by Fed policy. Um, the Fed has been thinking uh, long and hard about its exit strategy, how to shrink its balance sheet, how to prevent that liquidity from uh, doing what the Mississippi River is doing, uh, you know, uh, near near Baton Rouge. Um, I think they will be able to um, reverse out those liquidity injections and shrink their balance sheet when the time comes. The danger to the dollar it comes from medium-term fiscal policy. I think if uh, foreigners can conclude that responsible adults are, are not making fiscal policy in the United States, and the winner of the and if the winner of the 2012 presidential election doesn't use his honeymoon to push through a credible medium-term fiscal plan, then foreigners could decide uh, there are um, risks of some kind of open or covert debt default in the United mm -hmm. States. The pressure to inflate away the spiraling U.S. debt will become irresistible. They'll dump their treasury securities, and, and at some point the dollar will, will crash. That, to my mind, is the worry. So I wrote in the book about how we have maybe five years in the U.S. to get our fiscal house in order. Um, I've grown more pessimistic. I think 2013 will will be roughly the, the last chance from this point of view. Yeah, I'm, um, there's not a lot of encouraging signs on the political horizon that people are making. There's not a lot of encouraging signs that responsible adults are – are acting accordingly, so it is a little bit of a scary. Um, it is a scary time. My, my um, monetary worries come from an observation that Alan Meltzer made on this program. That while the Fed understands how to reverse that flow of um, funds, it will not have the political will to do so. That as the economy is starting to recover and unemployment is starting to finally come down, it'll be very difficult for the Fed to follow a tight money policy. That's that's the issue. Yeah, and and I. I uh, see the uh, the merit to that argument. If the economy is weak, um, uh, sharply lower uh, asset prices, which would be the implication uh, of the Fed selling off a lot of what it's bought, would would not uh, have happy effects. Well, let's. We have a few minutes left. Let's close. Let's talk a little bit about the crisis um, and maybe some of the international aspects to it. You you give a very nice survey of. The different contributing factors. Uh, you leave out a factor I'll, I'll come back to, but you do at the end suggest that a lot of these factors, um, overconfidence in, in risky um, assets and the, and the techniques to assess risk, like value at risk that we've talked a lot on this program about, uh, the originate and distribute model, the idea that mortgage um, originators were not holding the paper that they, that they originated and therefore were not as careful – uh, the role of ratings agencies, the search for yield that you talked about. Uh, but at the end you say, but a lot of this would maybe be not so important if monetary policy had not been so accommodating. And I really want to just ask you a technical question about monetary policy. And uh, 
again, longtime listeners will understand my relentless confusion and, and curiosity about this. You, as many do, including John Taylor, who's talked about it on the program, focus on interest rate changes and the the channel by which interest rates affect asset prices, um, send signals about costs, et cetera. But in the old days, uh, we focused on the money supply, uh, the, the liquidity that was out there that made, that financed um, much of this activity. Do you, um, you know, when we talk about Greenspan in the 2003 to 2005 period, 2002 to 04 where he is just before that lowered interest rates dramatically and then suddenly increases them. Uh, what does that have to do with the supply of money? Anything do you, in your your way of organizing your thinking, the lens you use to look at the world? Do you think about both? Do you think about just interest rates? How do you, how do you think about that? I, I think about both. So um, uh, I'm a, a student of um, Jim Tobin uh, at Yale. And uh, Tobin believed that uh, money and bonds and stocks and other securities are all imperfect substitutes for one another. Um, Changes in the price of one will kind of cascade over into changes in prices of uh, of the others. And you've got to worry about the whole collection. So I don't think there is uh, a magic monetary uh, single magic monetary variable, either a price or a quantity, that will tell you whether monetary policy is too tight or, or too loose. So John Taylor would would look at one policy rate and he would compare it to the uh, the rate um, spit out by his particular model of uh, optimal Fed uh, um, policy rates. I, I think kind of the whole vector, uh, the whole um, range of uh, interest rates matters, and and you've got to look at quantities uh, as well as prices. So I'm sorry about giving you a, a woolly answer to a, a a very precise question, but I, but I'm not of the view that there is either one magic monetary aggregate or one magic uh, interest rate that will tell you whether monetary policy is. Uh, too hot, too cold, or, or just right. No, I'm a woolly guy myself. I just think it's interesting how we look at one or the other sometimes when we're telling stories. Um, and I, I don't see a lot of people looking at, at the supply at the supply of money when they're looking in the last three or four years or more, longer, going back to the last decade, they look just most people just look at the price. They just look at, at the at the discount rate, and they don't look at the implications of quantities. Uh, so when I look at Bernanke again and talking about the current situation we're in, I see this weird world where he's paying unprecedented. Um, he's paying interest on for banks to hold their money with him, and um, which I view as a just a backdoor subsidy to the balance sheets of banks to prevent a catastrophe or to help them if, if you have a sinister view of the world. Um, and very untraditional monetary policy, but that if it were left alone and those reserves do go out, it's a quantity issue I'm going to be worrying about, not a price issue. So that's what, that's what I think about it. Maybe, maybe it's and – and I find it somewhat confusing, to be honest. Well, it, it, um, I, you know, I can certainly agree with the confusing part. <laughs> um, we talk a lot in terms of the 
uh, the prices of the interest rates because that's what uh, the talking heads on CNN and, and the market participants talk about. So maybe uh, uh, academics like you and me ought to uh, uh, try to compensate for that by talking a little bit more about the quantities. Um, I'm just back from Brazil where they talk um, uh, about the quantities uh, all the time. They're experiencing big capital inflows that are um, fueling rapid growth of bank lending, and they're worried about the consequences. That's why they've slapped on some controversial hmm. capital controls. But yeah, uh, in, in other parts of the world, uh, the quantities are, are pretty prominent. Well, when I interviewed Milton Friedman back in 2006, I asked him this question, and he said, uh, well, the Fed likes to talk about interest rate policy, but all they really do is they're really paying attention to M2. Something we don't even talk about anymore. We don't even keep track. Do we keep track of them too? Um, uh, I think we do. <laughs> one of them got cut recently. They don't, don't, even, don't even keep track of it anymore. Yeah. Well, what you know, what we uh, have have discovered, uh, in in my view, is that the relationship between the different M's and uh, the real economy, economic activity, has been shifting around because we've had a lot of financial innovation in recent decades. That means that uh, uh, M2 is, is not always uh, a reliable compass for what monetary policy is, is going to do for, uh, in, uh, to the real economy. Yeah, of course, neither is inter- neither is discount rate exactly, but um, it's, it's a yeah, complicated it means, world. Uh, as you say, the discount rate may not be a reliable compass either by itself. I just want to close with a challenge on something you talk about in the uh, book about the, the crisis, and it, as I said, it's a it's a very well written summary of it, it's it, it it's five or ten pages that really um, help uh, the uninitiated reader into some of the mysteries of what happened. One thing you leave out, which uh, is my personal pet peeve, so I want to raise it with you, is uh, the role of past bailouts, particularly of creditors particularly of lenders to large financial institutions in uh, making leverage as easy as it became in the in the crisis um, and I, I I understand the uh, emphasis on inadequate regulation and, and a free market ideology but most of the free market ideologues in the history of, of the last 25 years they were only free market ideologues when it was convenient uh, when it wasn't convenient, they were interventionists. As when those bailouts came along, they always found a reason to help out um, the financial sector. What do you think about the importance of that in, in the um, in the crisis? I, I agree with the uh, um, analytical point that uh, uh, a pattern of bailouts uh, over time will encourage risk-taking. Um, but when I look at... Uh, Bear Stearns uh, uh, before the crisis and ask myself, why did they have a leverage ratio of, of 33 to 1? I don't think it was primarily because they expected to be rescued if uh, uh, a bad thing happened. I think it was primarily because they were being squeezed by uh, competition from uh, a variety of new rivals following the uh, elimination of, of the Glass-Steagall Act and, and uh, a variety of other financial innovations. So they levered up their bets in, uh, in, in this uh, gamble to survive. 
Right, my, my claim is then, why did people lend him the money? And those are the people that I think are the, uh, the people who contributed to the crisis. They were other competing, often, uh, financial institutions that had seen what happened in the past when financial institutions went bust. Their creditors got 100 cents on the dollar. The equity holders got wiped out. So bears – actually, a bear didn't get rescued. So I don't think they were counting on the rescue. It's their creditors that were rescued, and they were made whole by the uh, acquisition by J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah, so there is, um, as I said, I think um, moral hazard, which is what we're talking about, um, is uh, a factor there. And the world would be a safer place if if there were uh, alternatives to bailouts. So, I, you know, I think um, simply to... Uh, uh, assume that we can safely let uh, uh, tightly connected financial institutions fail is uh, too easy. Lehman Brothers uh, reminds us that it's too easy, but we've got to do a variety of things to, to make financial institutions more transparent and um, uh, to uh, deal with uh, problems uh, of interconnectedness that, that have made policymakers feel like bailouts are, are the only, only alternative. I, I agree it shouldn't be that way, and I agree that the, uh, the world would be a safer uh, financial place otherwise. Um, I still don't uh, entirely agree with you, Russ, about the Bear Stearns point. Bear, Bear had lots of different creditors, most of which, uh, most of whose portfolios were uh, only a fraction, a small fraction in, in, invested in this one problematic financial institution. So, yeah, moral hazard may have been on the mind uh, of Bank of America and, and, and J.P. Morgan uh, and others. But again, I, I don't think it was myself that it was the, the major driver uh, in the crisis. Well, let's close with a question, an open-ended question about the Fed. Um, the Fed in the last – in the crisis, uh, as we've been t- dancing around a little bit, Fed's done a, a number of unprecedented things. It's it's a very autonomous organization, in a sense. Uh, its independence is much talked about. Of course, it's also a very political organization. It is subject to political forces of various kinds, uh, despite its so-called independence. Do you think there are any um, governance or institutional changes coming for the Fed, uh, rel- especially that are relevant to your? discussion of the dollar as, as a dominant currency, um, or do you think the Fed's going to continue to be as it is? Well, I think the, uh, the two things that will have to change are, are number one, uh, uh, res- residual secrets of, of the temple culture. Uh, the Fed uh, will have to uh, explain better how and why what it is doing is uh, are good for the average American. So Mr. Bernanke's press conference and his appearances on 60 Minutes uh, I think are, are, are necess- necessary. The Fed will have to become more open and transparent in order to uh, retain its legitimacy. Number two, I think the way the uh, presidents of, of the regional reserve banks are appointed will change over time uh, for historical reasons, they tend to be appointed uh, by committees of local uh, businessmen and bankers, and 
and it's not only, uh, I, I think, the businessmen and bankers who will have to be represented in that decision. It's pretty bizarro, isn't it, really? When you think about the, especially the New York branch, um, where it's not just, oh, the banks that happen to be operating in New York. It's rather the most influential and largest financial institutions in the world uh, are having a say. And then on the board of the representative who is their main conduit to Washington. It's a rather unhealthy political situation, seems to me. Yeah, I, I think it is uh, uh, a bizarre legacy of the past. We want to be careful in terms of how we change it. You don't want uh, the, the decision of who to, who to appoint to become too political, too politicized. But um, I, I, I think the, uh, the old ways there are, are on the way out. My guest today has been Barry Eichengreen. Barry, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.